So for just a couple of minutes, I want to do something different this morning, um, need to do something different this morning. And we have been uh, concerned, as you have, about COVID-19. Many of you have text or email or uh, uh, sent in questions in various ways, phone calls. And we've been wanting uh, to, to say something. We've been tremendously helped this week by the elders of Countryside and Tom Pennington. And um, we've come up with a statement that we want to read to you that I think uh, might encourage you and at least make, uh, make things clear, at least in terms of how the elders are thinking and leading. And so I want to talk to you about the announcement that we made a couple of weeks ago about lifting the COVID-19 restrictions. When the elders set out to make that decision, we agreed that this was within the realm of conscience. It is a decision that we as elders of the church have to make before the Lord. And just as parents are required to make decisions for their families, so the elders have been given by God the responsibility to lead in everything. It's certainly in times like this, and we take that responsibility very seriously. It may help you to understand, as a church family, if I detail several factors that we felt like we needed to balance in our discussion considering the various options before us. And many of you have asked, why did we need to make any changes at all at this point? And, and I would say that there are three realities that really drove the need for that decision. Number one, a few weeks ago we realized that so many people were showing up. Uh, you can't tell that today because it's thinned out some for obvious reasons, but several weeks ago we realized that so many people were showing up for worship that we would soon be unable to accommodate the number of people who wanted to come and be a part of worship service without adding another service. Secondly, it appears to us that the COVID-19 virus may be with us for the long run. And so we really have to determine what we think church life should look like for the foreseeable future. And the third consideration was, while we don't want to minimize anyone's personal suffering because of the virus, we have come to see that its overall impact in terms of life-threatening symptoms and deaths have been much lower than was originally predicted. And you know that when the government asked us to shut down early on, we did that because the outlook was really, really grim. Well, to resolve all these concerns, we started with the conviction that we have to prioritize our spiritual health while at the same time balancing our physical well-being. We're grateful for our state government because they have exempted churches from any requirements, really, whatsoever, recognizing both the freedom of worship and the responsibility, the priority of worship. Unlike many places where some of our fellow brothers and sisters are in various states, and they don't have those kinds of freedoms, and we do. Our desire as elders is to care for all the members of this church, regardless of your circumstances or regardless of your individual concerns. That is our heart, and we want you to hear that this morning. And it is the heart of every faithful shepherd of God's people, I would submit, it was really that heart that led us to the decision that we made most recently. 
At the same time, we also want to allow you as much as possible to make some of these decisions for yourselves. In light of all of those factors, we made the decision to lift all of the requirements for masks and social distancing. For those of you who want to attend, but for a variety of reasons may need to social distance, we will continue to offer a distancing, distance seating over in the conference room in the office building. In fact, uh, when you enter that building, you will, have, you will see someone will be there to offer you fresh N95 masks for your comfort and for your sense of security relative to the virus. And I know some of you need to be there because you have employer issues. And so we want to make that available and make it as safe as possible. As we said a couple of weeks ago, face masks will no longer be required when you enter or exit the chapel and, and fellowship hall. Instead, they will be optional before, during, and after the service. If you want to wear a mask to worship service, please do. Before I leave this point, let me comment on our churches, our elders' perspective on masks. Nothing has been more divisive than the issue of masks. If you need to wear a mask because of your circumstances or because of, the preferen of your preferences, the elders and I want you to know that you are more than welcome to do so. We want you to do so without any reservations or hesitation. We will not pass judgment on you for wearing a mask. In this church, your choosing to wear a mask will not be seen as a political statement, and it will not be seen as you're giving in to irrational fear. I know for many of you, that's just not true. There are legitimate reasons that you may need to do so, and we respect that, and we honor that. And for those of you who are on the other side of the issue, you may be thrilled to learn that we no longer have to wear masks. You've been hoping that would come sooner. And I say to you, enjoy that freedom. But do not sit in judgment over those who do. And don't even think about saying to someone who is wearing a mask, hey, you don't need to worry, that, uh, worry about that mask. Why don't you just take that off? As your pastor, let me just be somewhat blunt on this point. To say such a thing is to reveal both ignorance, because you have no idea what the circumstances of that person may be, and it also reveals an unloving spirit toward that brother or sister in the Lord. That kind of attitude will not be tolerated at Calvary Bible Church. And I say that full of grace and love. With that mind, with that in mind, let me, let me make a couple other clarifying comments. With these changes, we still need to respect other people's desire for physical distance. Some, some, from time to time, you may sense that someone that you come near would like more space as you're trying to shake their hand or give them a hug or you're wanting to sit next to them. Respect that and don't force your will upon theirs. Also, we're all going to need to continue to practice careful, and I mean careful, self-screening before we come. We understand that there are asymptomatic carriers, and this is not going to help them. It's not going to help us or protect us from them. 
But we can at least protect one another if we have some of the symptoms consistent with the virus by staying away and making sure we don't unwittingly expose others. To be clear, and I want this to be very clear, if you feel at all sick, stay home. Even if you're in a leadership position, if you feel sick, stay home. Somebody will fill in for you. If, if I'm sick, somebody's going to fill in for me. It's okay. It's okay. And so if you're experiencing any symptoms at all, stay home. Now let me make another point, just so we understand. In deciding to implement these changes, the elders and I are fully aware that we may have to make other changes and adjustments in the coming months to react to the changes in circumstances or in our church or in our community. And that is not a failure of planning. It's part of the plan. All of our plans, all of our plans are fallible, dependent plans. And so we're happy to make those reactions and adjustments and changes as needed. But we are convinced that making changes as required is better than living in a constant state of restriction. And so we will adjust here and there as we need to. And we realize that COVID cases are currently on the rise right now, and you may prefer to participate with us from the relative safety of your home. You have our blessing to do so. In fact, many of you are doing that right now and are watching me say these words. And let me just make this clear. My responsibility, my responsibility is to be here in this pulpit week after week preaching the word of God. And I have, I think without fail from the beginning of the pandemic and will continue to stand in this pulpit preaching the word of God. Your responsibility is to decide how to please the Lord, whether you should come or whether you should stay home. And so this is what the elders wanted to say to you this morning. Again, we just wanted you to know our heart on these issues. And our goal here is to serve every member of the church. And I hope you sense that even in the way that we've tried to care for each person as we think through how best to care for the spiritual well-being of this church and protecting the physical well-being of the church as well. Well, enough said. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's, uh, I was going to say times like this. We've never experienced times like this. This is new for us and has been new since February when all of this started, and it keeps keeps changing and shifting, and our responsibilities shift and change. And Lord, we want to be faithful to you. Our, our ultimate vision, as always, is simply to be faithful in the next decision. Thank you, Father, for helping us to communicate a little better today. We pray, Father, that, you're, that you would preserve your people, that you would help us to use every opportunity we have to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things to the glory of God. Lord, we want to do that. We want to be more faithful in that. And we want the freedom to worship. We want the freedom to stay home. We want the freedom to be safe. We want the freedom to take risks. And Father, I pray that you would be glorified in these things as we, as we bow before you and as we humble ourselves before one another. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your kindness to us.
even in pandemic. We praise you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so why don't we look at the Word of God together? Just listen to these first few minutes. Not like you haven't been listening to me for a long time already. Here's a narrative that might set the stage. In the year 62 AD, a crime was committed in a small backwater town in present-day Turkey that went by the name of Colossi. The record of the event doesn't include the description of what was stolen, but it was clearly something the owner deemed valuable. Pursuing all known leads, the investigators on the case were able to trace the thief's movements for about a thousand miles before the trail evaporated in the dense population of the imperial city of Rome. The crime probably would have remained unresolved and historically unknown forever, except that the invisible hand of God led the young thief to a house where no less than the Apostle Paul was staying. Well, it's not clear how these two lives actually came together. It has been suggested that the fugitive, lost, hungry, destitute of all necessity, providentially ran into a man from his hometown, one Epaphras by name, who was personally acquainted with the Apostle Paul and was in Rome for that very purpose, to minister to Paul. And perhaps he is the one who led him to where the Apostle lived. Who was this mystery felon? Well, if you've read your Bible, you already know him. He is the runaway slave, Onesimus. Though Paul was under house arrest at the time, he and Onesimus became dear friends. And through continued fellowship, Onesimus repented and became a Christian, helping Paul in his ministry. But somewhere along the way, Onesimus must have confessed to the to Paul, his background and his crime against his former master, Philemon, and his flight for freedom dis, uh, from his master, Philemon. And despite Onesimus' newfound life in Christ, Paul knew that his past actions needed resolution. He was now a Christian who had sinned against a brother in Christ, and the teaching of Jesus on the matter couldn't be clearer. In the words of Christ himself in Matthew 5.23, we read, If you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, friends, there can be no true fellowship between offended believers without reconciliation. And in the mind of God, listen carefully, when fellowship is lost, reconciliation is more important in the eyes of God than worship. This, my friends, is the major theme of this letter and all of it is couched in the beautiful and powerful framework of the experience of biblical fellowship. And the message I want you to take away today is this, that the fellowship of brotherly love most powerfully glorifies Christ 
when it reconciles estranged Christians. Let me say it again. The fellowship of brotherly love most powerfully glorifies Christ when it reconciles estranged Christians. But as always, I'd like to begin this message not with me talking more, but let's stand together and listen to God's word as we read the entire letter of Philemon. Some of you are thinking, oh no, we're never going to get out of here today. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now, indeed, he is useful and to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a little while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, Receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do everything that I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, in Christ Jesus sends his greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You can be seated. 
Well, it's time to say the amen and go home. (laughs) Before we get into the meat of the text, let me just make a few observations that, that may help. At the end of our study of Colossians, we learned that nearly all the people that Paul names as his fellow ministers there are are named again in the book of Philemon. We just read that. And that's because the letter to the Colossians was addressed to the very person whose home the church met in. The church of Colossae was meeting, at least in part, in the home of Philemon. That explains why all of these names have connections. When Paul wrote this short epistle, he was in Rome under house arrest, and that's why, verse 1, he refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ. Now, normally, when Paul writes a letter, he identifies himself as an apostle of Christ or a servant of Christ, but here we find Paul calling himself the prisoner of Christ. It's remarkable to me to note That while Paul may have been in the custody of Rome, he was the prisoner of Christ. The love of Christ constrained him. One fateful day, several decades earlier, while on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus himself arrested him with the power of sovereign grace. And next, we should observe in verse 1, And Paul mentions a few significant people. First of all, Timothy, Paul's protege, whom we all know rather well. And then there's Philemon, who is likely a businessman, probably in agriculture, who owned a house and slaves. I would remind you that we learned some things about ancient slavery when we were recently studying the book of Colossians, so I'm not going to repeat all of that for you this morning. For our purposes, slavery becomes an issue because As we have already said, Onesimus was Philemon's slave and that he had run away. If it weren't for that, we would have no letter to Philemon. Well, more to come on that. We should also make mention of those uh, who were in this inspired postcard, the ones that Paul addresses the letter to. He says, to Philemon our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow worker. Now, if you read the literature on that verse in these names, you'll find that most scholars believe that Aphia is Philemon's wife, and Archippus is their son. Of course, no one knows how old Archippus is. I like to think of him as a a small boy, Archie. As I studied it this week, however, more likely he was a young man like Timothy was in the early days. He would already been entrusted with significant responsibility. Hence, at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says, tell Archippus to fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And then here in verse 2, Paul refers to young Archie as our fellow soldier which is why the last point last week was about our fellow soldier. It was really about Archie. Now, the final final honorable mention is the church that meets in their house. I love the way Paul writes that. Because the church is not the building. The church is the people who meet in that building. 
In America, we talk about going to church. In the lands of Russia and the Russian-speaking world that I minister to, uh, they, don't, they don't think of it like that. Uh, they never know how long they're going to have a building. The church is the people. The church is us. We are the church, and so we love to be. Now, I want to remind you that the central theme of this little epistle is reconciliation. You're going to hear that again and again, forgiveness and reconciliation. And what we have here in this story is one man who has sinned. We also have one man who has been sinned against. And we have one man helping these two brothers to reconcile. And I love this because it's a, it's a great picture of of the personal ministry that goes on when in the church, your average Christian finds out that two people are at odds with each other and they step in and they say, can we help you with that? Or maybe it's one of our biblical counselors. They come and seek reconciliation. It's just the way it works. And as we will see going along the way, we will see that this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. One man who has sinned, one who has been sinned against, and one who has come to help reconcile them both. Now the goal Paul has in mind was not merely to convince them to bury the hatchet, as we would say, but rather to transform their relationship completely. Why? Because this is what Christians do. We live the gospel. We live the overflow of the gospel. When there is a sinful breach of fellowship, we reconcile. If we don't reconcile, we are living in unbelief, though we may call ourselves believers. We must reconcile with one another because we exist to show the world what God is like. We exist to show the world what Jesus is like. And we exist to show the world what the gospel is like. Paul is adorning the gospel of God in his labor to mediate between these two parties, not merely so that they can recover the old relationship, but rather to, to make that relationship better than it ever was before. I've told you before that there's at least a couple of my closest friends over the years have been people that I've had the biggest conflict with. And we just both, uh, both parties determined that, that by God's grace we would figure out how to respond to this circumstance biblically. And it didn't give us back our old relationship, it made it better than it ever was. And that's what we'll see here in this little letter. Paul wants Philemon and Onesimus, he wants them to come together no longer as slave and master but his father and son. Therefore, after his usual greeting in verse 3, which I won't touch this morning, Paul begins to, uh, to pour out over Philemon the fellowship of appreciation. The fellowship of appreciation. I, I want to make the case this morning that fellowship is really the overarching theme of this book and that reconciliation is taking place within that theme. Now, the focus on fellowship may seem a little bit arbitrary at first, but really it's not. 
The epicenter of the whole letter is found in verse 6, where Paul says to Philemon, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, how does that help us with fellowship? Well, that's a good question. The word for sharing here, where he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. The word for sharing here, surprisingly, is koinonia, which you, all of you Bible students know. This is fellowship. It's the typical word for fellowship. And this is a precious word for Christians. It refers to how we experience an intimate sharing of one another and a mutual sharing of Christ as we are all in Christ, united with Christ. There is a deep, rich theology behind the biblical concept of fellowship, at least in many places. And so we should be careful how we use the word fellowship. We should be careful how we use the word fellowship. I say that because uh, we, the elders, when we've been talking about the upcoming holiday celebration, Thanksgiving, we have frequently referred to it as the pie fellowship. But we don't have spiritual oneness with pie. Now, on that night, you will probably get physical oneness with pie, <laughs> but not a spiritual oneness. In the letter to Philemon, the Holy Spirit is calling us to share, listen, a radical kind of fellowship, a radical koinonia. And trust me when I say this, if you put yourself in the place of Philemon, he has no idea what's about to descend upon him in this short letter. He is going to be asked to do something that would have never crossed his mind. The difficulty of it, the pain of it, the, the countercultural counterculture-ness of it. He will be swimming upstream to be sure. Probably no one has ever seen the likes of what Paul is asking this Gentile man to do. Paul is going to call Philemon to do the unthinkable in first century Asia. He wants Philemon not only to put a stay on the usual death penalty for runaways, but to completely forgive and reconcile with him as a brother and son in the Lord for the glory of the gospel, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, you don't need signs and wonders to pr prove the gospel is true. All you need is radical obedience to the word of God. In verse 4, Paul is just warming up to the subject. He's wisely offering Philemon's heart before he even, um, before Philemon even knows what Paul's going to ask him, Paul is warming him up. He's not buttering him up. He's not flattering him. The first words Paul speak are words of deep appreciation. I'm calling this the fellowship of appreciation. Paul loves this brother. Philemon was born again under Paul's personal ministry. We all know that Paul never shies away from addressing character flaws in his own teammates when necessary, but, but there's none of that here. There's none of that here. 
since the day that Philemon came to know Christ, probably the same place Epaphras did, probably in Ephesus at the school of Tyrannus, and he was born again from that moment on, Paul has been impressed with this man. Paul holds Philemon in highest regard. Look at verse 4. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. I mean, Philemon must have been a uniquely godly figure in the early church. He isn't identified as a pastor. He isn't identified as a deacon. We don't know from the text of Scripture that he had any formal training or other than meeting with the Apostle Paul, but no formal place of ministry in the church. He was just a godly businessman who opened his home so that the church would have a place to meet. He's a godly Christian. He's a man of such quality that Paul says, listen, every time I think of you, I thank God. You know anybody like that in your life? Every time I think of you, I thank God. There, I mean, if there is someone or, or two, there's probably only a couple. I can think of a couple in, in my life history that I can earnestly say, every time I think of you, I thank God. If some of you are part of this church, I feel that way about. Some of them are long history, historically, over the past many decades, just dear friends, every time I think of you, I thank God. I mean, can you imagine having a heavyweight like Paul say something like that about you? This is a man of supreme character. He was above reproach. He was a man of kindness and love and leadership and faithfulness. You've got to know, Paul could have said of many, every time I think of you, I ask God to make you repent. Or every time I think of you, I pray that God would draw you back to himself. But if I leave and he says, every time I think of you, I thank God. What is Paul doing? He is communicating a deep appreciation. Again, it's what I'm calling the fellowship of appreciation. Paul's words the fruit of sharing life and ministry with Philemon, Philemon, who like Epaphras, probably heard Paul face to face. And by the way, there's an excellent leadership lesson here. Effective leaders express substantive appreciation to those they lead. This is true of pastoring and parenting and marriage and in a thousand other leadership roles, some of which you may have. It's just easier to follow someone who spends more time expressing appreciation than disappointment and correction. Paul was an effective leader in that regard. Paul was an effective leader. He was a huge encourager. But Paul isn't finished with the appreciation. He goes on to say, verse 5, here's the reason he appreciates him, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. This is a man who loved the church. He came out of a pagan lifestyle. He was a Gentile. And here's, here's this Jewish rabbi 
who comes and proclaims the message of God with power. This is the substance behind Paul's appreciation. When he says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. It's a big deal. Love in the church is a big deal. I hope if you're visiting Calvary Bible Church today or have been for the last few weeks that, that you have felt loved, that you recognize that you have been loved by the people. And if you haven't, I want to know. Paul said the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Now here's the substance. This is the substance behind Paul's appreciation. The reason Paul appreciates Philemon so much is because even when they are separated by a thousand miles, he keeps hearing reports about Philemon's faith in Christ and his care for God's people. You know, here's Paul. He's a thousand miles away. He's in jail. He's in Rome. And this church that he can't get to, he worries about them like he did the church of Ephesus, like he did especially with the church in, 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 in Philippi. He's worried about them. He's concerned about them. But the news that he keeps hearing is, you know that brother whose house we meet in, our small group leader? Maybe he was a small group leader. Uh... If, that mean, if, if that's like our small groups, they're like 50 or 60 people, right? Paul keeps hearing word. Every time someone comes to visit, when they've made their way through Colossae, they come and they say, hey, I'll tell you about Philemon. I just won't believe this guy. I mean, he's a busy, busy businessman. He's got issues of concern. You know, he's got a slave who ran away, and that's kind of messed things up. He's got to replace him. And yet, the word is, this man loves everyone. He loves everyone. He treats them kindly. He, he treats them well. And ironically, Paul probably received at least some of these glowing reports from um, Onesimus, his runaway slave turned brother in Christ. We don't know why Onesimus ran away, but apparently it wasn't because he was provoked by mistreatment on the part of Philemon. This was a man whose signature characteristics were, according to Paul, faith toward Christ and love toward people. I mean, isn't that the greatest command? What is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all your mind and all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Meet a man who is doing that at least by Paul's testimony. He was loving God and loving the people who were in reasonable proximity, people who were under his leadership. And by the way, true faith will always be accompanied by love. When a, receiver, when, when a, when a sinner receives the gift of faith unto salvation, the fruit of that faith is always love. Love for God and love for people. You begin to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. And the binary principle is that you begin loving your neighbor as yourself. This was evident in Philemon's life. This was evident in Philemon's life, and apparently a lot of people knew it. And Paul told him so. As a point of application, can I just ask you a question? 
When was the last time you sent a note to someone in the church body just to verbalize substantial or substantive appreciation for their evident faith and obvious love? It would be really encouraging to some people in this church body, especially the invisible folks like Jesus Justice we talked about last week who are serving all the time. You kind of know they're there, but you never see them. It would be really cool if they received a note this week. Just saying, hey, brother, I have seen your faith and your love for God's people, your faith in God and your love for God's people, and it too often goes unnoticed. I want you to know, I see it, and I love you for it. Press on. Be faithful. You encourage me to do the same. Well, this is a great way to lay the relational groundwork for deep fellowship within the body of Christ this is the fellowship of appreciation. The second, we come to the fellowship of sanctification. Now, get ready for this. Let me just warn you ahead of time. Uh, this is going to be rather technical, and you're going to understand why as we go along. I, I try to make things as simple as possible. I try to worry about the technicalities in my study and then make it very, very simple here. Uh, it's going to be a little more difficult this morning because of verse 6, which I'll talk about so just, uh, just take a couple of deep breaths to kind of get your brain away because you're going to have to follow along with me, okay? I'm just giving you an upfront warning. So here we go, the fellowship of sanctification. So let's refresh again on verse 6. It reads, And I pray that the sharing, there's that word for koinonia, that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now, as I have said, this verse is the epicenter of the whole letter, I think. The problem, however, is that it's a difficult verse to understand, as you have probably already gathered just by my reading it a couple of times. What does this verse mean? I mean, let me read it one more time and see if you can just get the meaning out of it. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Hmm? That sounds wonderful. You know what you would do in your quiet time when you read this? You would go, hmm, interesting, keep moving. Nothing to see here. Go back to your homes. Let's take a minute, oh, a few minutes, to walk step by step through this. Now, Paul has just commended Philemon for his faith, right? Interact with me a little bit, right? Right. Now he prays about the sharing of that faith. But what does Paul mean when he says, when he speaks of sharing your faith? What do you think it means? You're probably thinking, he's talking about sharing the gospel. I mean, that's what it says. That's the way, that's the way we talk. He went on to speak about sharing your faith. But, but, I, but I wouldn't want to submit to you if you dig into this text, you realize it's not about evangelism. Although, there are some Bible translations that hint in that direction. And, and, a, and, a, and, and some study Bibles will say, this is about you sharing your faith. And I, I would contend that it's not. It's not about sharing your faith. So, the word for sharing, as I said earlier, is koinonia, usually translated fellowship, 
In our modern culture, fellowship is something we experience when we get together. We view it as a kind of passive thing that comes upon us when we all like each other. You look around the room and you think, I can't think of it. I don't see a single person I don't like. We enjoy being together. And, and fellowship is being with people you like and sharing with each other and praying together. And I would submit that that is not an illegitimate expression of true fellowship. But in this passage, Paul means much more. The renowned commentator Douglas Moo points out that Paul is the only New Testament writer who uses koinonia in a theologically significant way. It's not, a just, not just about meet and greet. And here, it is very significant. In this verse, koinonia, or fellowship, is offered as an, in an active sense. It is not simply experiencing something passively. It is doing something intentionally. Now, let, me, let me just give you a heads up. What does he want him to do intentionally? Philemon doesn't know yet, but you know. And I want to remind you that you know so that you can follow along here. Paul is going to ask him to do something radically difficult. And so this koinonia is significant because it's not passive, it's active. It is not simply experiencing something passively, it's doing something intentionally. And the reason fellowship is doing, the reason it's doing something is because it is rooted in faith. It's rooted in faith. Now, now, why is that an appropriate connection? Well, first of all, linguistically, they're, they're together in this sentence. However, what is faith? Faith isn't just believing. Faith is always moving. It's always moving, right? Uh, if I said, I believe I could jump off this platform and not sprain my ankle, is that faith? Uh, faith would be jumping off this platform and seeing if I do sprain my ankle. If I say, if I say that I could walk across a tight rope across Niagara Falls, I believe that. It's quite another thing to get in, to get up on the on the on the line and walk it. That would be faith. Listen, let me say it this way: Faith is not faith unless it is exercised. Faith is not just something you have. Faith is what you do. It is, let me, say, let me put it a different way. Faith is trusting God to enable you to do what he wants you to do when he wants you to do it. It is active, it is moving, it is doing. And that doing may be Sending a card, it may be repenting to someone, it may be repenting just you and God making things right, it, it might be giving away a bunch of money, it might be fixing someone's car, it might, who knows what it is, but faith is active, it's doing, it is trusting in God. One's active trusting in Christ drives us to an active sharing, an active loving one another. And so Paul is praying, again, Paul is saying, this is how I pray for you, this is what happens when I pray for you. Paul is praying 
that the active participation or active ministry to others that grows out of your active faith in Jesus will do something. Now, what does Paul pray that it will do? Well, he tells us. Paul is praying that Philemon's active faith, which manifests in active sharing, koinonia, will, verse 6, become effective. You see that in your Bible? It will become effective. Now, the term effective is the word from which we derive in the English the word energy. Energy. Effective, just if you're writing in your Bible or in your notes, effective means energy, or it means power. Or at least the implication is power. So, Paul is asking God to make Philemon Make Philemon's active sharing or active generosity powerful. Make his generosity powerful. Make his ministry powerful in his life and in the churches. And then Paul adds the phrase, through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. Is that clear? Your silence is betraying you. It is, it's not clear. The word for knowledge here is not a reference, and I would say it's not clear, not because the Bible is unclear, but we are sometimes not clear about the context. We're not clear about the language. We're not clear about the culture. For example, the word knowledge, we have a way of thinking about knowledge that's different than the way Paul thinks about knowledge. And so we have to get over that. We have to learn. So through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake, the word for knowledge here is not a reference to accumulation of facts and propositions. But rather, it's a knowledge that can be known only by practical experience. If you're a single person, do you know what it's like to be married? And someone might say, well, sure. And they might give you a, a description that the rest of us would laugh at. <laughs> like that. <laughs> Spoken by a single woman. <laughs> We're just family here, right? <laughs> that was perfect. It was like that day that lightning struck and, and it was perfect timing. <laughs> it was great. Our family used to do a lot of rock climbing and rappelling over cliffs when we were a little bit younger. And each time we would send a new person over the edge of the cliff, and before they went over, I would say something. I would, I would explain that the first few steps are going to be really scary. But as soon as the rope gets to a point where it's over your head, you're going to feel as secure as if you were standing on the ground. And you know what? Not a one of them appreciated that lecture. <laughs> they could say they believe me, and they would eventually go over. But it's not until that rope gets above your head that you feel secure. It works every time. But you'll never really know what I'm talking about until you experience it for yourself. And so Paul is saying that your active sharing and loving koinonia will become powerful as you act on every good thing or every good impulse that is in you because God put it in you for the glory of Jesus. 
when you received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We don't separate them. The reason I call this the fellowship of sanctification is because Paul describes this dynamic as something that is future in Philemon's life. He's saying, I'm praying that this will happen. Praying that God will do this in you. It is something that Paul prays will happen when you take the risks necessary to actively love others in practical ways. There are things you will not understand or know until you step out and, and pursue genuine fellowship, a sharing, a loving, an active giving toward other people. There will be things about God that you cannot know until you step out and take the risk and do it. Whatever it is that God puts on your heart to do, Whatever it is you know his word wants you to do. Paul's praying that that would happen. It's future-oriented, it's growth, so it's sanctification. This is the fellowship of sanctification. Paul's asking God for that kind of growth in Philemon's life. That is, he's praying for Philemon's sanctification. So that in the fellowship, there will be sanctification. and There will be radical ministry. And again... Philemon still has no idea what's about to hit him. And that brings us to the fellowship of edification. This is if you're, um, if you're thinking appreciation and edification sound very similar, it's because there's a chiastic structure here. And if you know what that means, enjoy that. Look for it after the service. If you don't, we don't have time. So in verse 7, Paul writes, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. When we use the word edification, we're normally talking about building up, building someone up. Um, when the kids were little, sometimes we would say, if they're old enough to, to understand, what you said was not edifying. It doesn't build, it didn't build up, it tore down. That may come, that edification might come through instruction. It might come through correction. It may come through words of encouragement. And, and that's what we find here, more words of encouragement. Paul is building up Philemon through words of affirmation and encouragement. He's not commanding Philemon to do anything. He's simply rejoicing in the effective ministry he's already done and is doing even now. And Paul has confidence that when it comes time to show forgiving, reconciling love to his runaway slave Onesimus, he will do it. Because he has a long history of loving and serving and stepping out actively for others for the sake of Jesus. While it may be true that Paul has never visited the church of Colossae, he clearly has a close relationship with Philemon. He knows this man. And it was a wonderful, joyful relationship. This friendship has given Paul much joy and comfort 
because of his evident love. I'll tell you who one of those men is, the former pastor of this church, Jim Pittman, got to go with uh, us to Shepherd's Conference a couple years ago. And uh, these things that Paul is saying about Philemon are the things that I can say about Jim. He's no longer here. We don't see him, and yet we love him. And here is a man that, that gives comfort. He refreshes people. And this was not, on the part of Philemon, it was not an exclusive kind of love that he only shared with the Apostle Paul. No, this brother was known as one whose love for the saints refreshed them. Now, I know this message has been a little technical, more technical than usually our sermons are. But I trust the Lord is speaking to you this morning through his word, by his spirit. And perhaps there's something that God is calling you to do in terms of active sanctification, edification, and appreciation. You, you may know as you teeter back and forth on whether to do that thing that you think will glorify God, but you're just afraid to do it. Can I just exhort you? Do it. Do it. Take the risk. Do it. And here at the end, let me just offer a final summary. Maybe it will help us solidify these things in our hearts. If we could have our commentator friend, Douglas Moo, come and be here for a final word, he might say this, and I suggest that because he did say this. This is a quote from him. When people believe in Christ, they become identified with one another in an intimate association and incur both the benefits and responsibilities of that communion. Isn't that interesting? It's not just kumbaya time. It's wonderful fellowship, the kind that makes you feel good, and it is responsibility. Both the benefits and the responsibilities of that communion. The letter to Philemon is fundamentally all about those responsibilities as Paul, Onesimus, and Philemon, bound together in faith, are forced by circumstances to think through the radical impl implications of their koinonia. How does the fellowship that God provides, how does it affect your relationships? Here at Calvary Bible Church, all of this is just as necessary now as it was 2,000 years ago. There will be times when one person sins against another in a grievous way, and we will have to decide how to respond. We can respond as the world does and merely cut one another off, or we can ask God to use our active faith and the knowledge of our mutual participation in Christ to engage in the difficult and radical act of reconciliation for the glory of Jesus and the exaltation of the gospel. And so I say again, beloved, the fellowship of brotherly love most powerfully glorifies Christ when it reconciles estranged Christians. Let's pray. 
Father, we believe this is true because the way you receive most glory in the world is by reconciling sinners to yourself. And that was not a freebie to us. You had to pay dearly for that reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation never come without cost. I pray, Father, that each one of us would be willing to pay it, whatever that means in that particular circumstance, to own their sin, to confess, as Paul did, that he was the chief of sinners. It shouldn't be surprising that we sin against one another. It should only be surprising when we fail to reconcile. Help us, Father, to help one another. Help us to see your glory in the book of Philemon, this postcard from prison. We pray, Father, that you would have, by your spirit, the appropriate effect on this congregation, Calvary Bible Church, which we love. We praise you for it all in Jesus' name.